Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, where we will be starting a new book, a new Hemingway List book, Budden Brooks, today, here and now, reading chapter one. Um, I thought I'd give you a little update, a year in the making, this update. Um, old school listeners will remember this, but about a year ago, my domain, thehemingwaylist.com, accidentally let the domain registration lapse and swooped in by a poacher. A poacher swooped in and registered it under my nose, so I no longer have my own domain name, uh, my own URL. And the only reason they do that is because part of Crazy Domain's business model is to do this like broker a deal. Like if you can't get your domain, they can help you broker a deal with that person and cost $150 to get a, a broker to help you negotiate and then 20% of whatever the the cost is to buy back the domain and it's all it's all just rigged you know the people they're buying it back for from is just another shell company that they also own where they just buy the domains and then make you pay them to help you buy it back off them it's all bullshit anyway it made me so angry a year ago you would remember it if you tuned in you probably remember but you know, my plan was this. You know what I'm going to do? It's been registered for one year. I'm just going to wait a year and I'm going to buy it back. That's what I'm going to do. So I waited a year. And um, I've just gone to have a look. And guess what? They renewed it for another year. So my plan, one year in the making, just failed miserably. So that's very annoying. The most, you know, the bit that really just like, ah really annoys me is the fact that there's just nothing on that domain it's just blank like they haven't actually used it for anything and why would you who who else in the whole world would want the hemingwaylist.com except for me so they literally just bought it so that i can't have it and that oh, anyway <laughs> gets under your skin doesn't it what a horrible way to start a new year i'm sorry you had to listen to me get angry just now but um, plan B, I'll come up with a plan B and hopefully plan B won't take one year to execute. Um, now, a new book, a new year. What translation of the book are you reading was my first question. Um, there's two English translations. There's the Low Porter translation from 1924 and there's the Woods translation from 1996. There might be more than that, but those are the two that I know of via Swims at the Mama Fishy, by the way, who let me know that. Thanks, Swim. Um, Swim says, I suspect Andrew will be reading the Low Porter one. I am going to be today, and I'm going to see how it goes. I'm going to see how it reads. If it sucks, I might endeavor to, over the next few years, get my hands on that more modern translation, because I have had books ruined by older translations before you know if anyone's listened to me read the brothers karamazov earlier on this podcast you'll know that i absolutely despised the english translation of that book that's in the public domain and there are more modern ones which are just so much better so much better it really ruined the book for me so we'll start with low porter the public domain one it might be great or it might suck you know I just read you Maud translation, which is in the public domain of War and Peace, and that's a great translation. Um, so, hey, we might get lucky. 
Now, uh, okay, what are we doing? I guess we just start reading, don't we? There's a translator's note. Should I read the translator's note, I wonder, by Low Porter? I will. Hopefully it doesn't spoil anything. Buddenbrooks was written before the turn of the century. It was published in 1902 and became a German classic. It is one of those novels, we possess many of them in English, which are at once a work of art and a unique record of a period and a district. Buddenbrooks is great in its psychology, great as a monument of a vanished cultural tradition, and ultimately great by the perfection of its art, the classic purity and beautiful austerity of its style. The translation of a book which is a triumph of style in its own language is always a piece of effrontery. Buddenbrooks is so leisurely, so chiselled, the great gulf of the war divided its literary method from that of our time. Besides, the author has recorded much dialect. This difficulty is inseparable. Dialect cannot be transferred. So, the present translation is offered with humility. It was necessary to recognise that the difficulties were great, yet it was necessary to set oneself the bold task of transferring the spirit first and the letter so far as might be, and above all, to make certain that the work of art coming as it does to the ear, in German, like music out of the past, should in English at least not come like a translation, which is, God bless us, a thing of naught. Um, I guess that last bit, God bless us, a thing of naught, is an example of a literal translation that doesn't quite come across in English. Alright, translator's note, well done. Pretty standard translator's note. It's like, uh, don't hate on me too much, this was pretty hard to do. <laughs> That's... I should put that in the, as a translator's note on the uh, Andalus version of War and Peace. Don't hate on me too much. This was pretty hard to do. Enjoy the book. <laughs> All right. Let's read chapter one of Buddenbrooks. And. And what comes next? Uh, yes, yes. What the Dickens does come next? C'est la question, ma très demoiselle. Frau Consul Buddenbrook shot a glance at her husband and came to the rescue of her little daughter. She sat with her mother-in-law on a straight white enameled sofa with yellow cushions and a gilded lion's head at the top. The Consul was in his easy chair beside her and the child perched on her grandfather's knee in the window. Tony, prompted the Frau Consul, I believe that God... Dainty little eight-year-old Antony... Antony, in her shot silk frock, turned her head away from her grandfather and stared aimlessly about the room with her blue-grey eyes, trying hard to remember. Once more she repeated, what comes next? And went on slowly, I believe that God, and then her face brightening briskly finished the sentence, created me together with all living creatures. She was in smooth waters now and rattled away, beaming with joy through the whole article, reproducing it word for word from the catechism just promulgated with the approval of the omniscient senate in that very year of grace, 1835. When you were once fairly started, she thought, it was very like going down more Jerusalem with your brothers on the little sled. You had no time to think and you couldn't stop, even if you wanted to. And clothes and shoes, she said, meat and drink, Hearth and home, wife and child, acre and cow. But old Johann Buddenbrook could hold in no longer. He burst out laughing in a high, smothered titter. 
in his glee at being able to make fun of the catechism. He had probably put the child through the little examination with no other end in view. He inquired after Tony's acre and cow, asked how much she wanted for a sack of wheat, and tried to drive a bargain with her. His round, rosy, benevolent face, which never would look cross, no matter how hard he tried, was set in a frame of snow-white powdered hair, and the suggestion of a pigtail fell over the broad collar of his mouse-coloured coat. His double chin rested comfortably on a white lace frill. He still, in his seventies, adhered to the fashions of his youth. Only the lace frogs and the big pockets were missing, and never in all his life had he worn a pair of trousers. They had all joined in his laughter, but largely as a mark of respect for the head of the family, Madame Antoinette Buttonbrook, born de Champs, tittered in precisely the same way as her husband. She was a stout lady, with thick white curls over her ears, dressed in a plain gown of striped black and grey stuff which betrayed the native quiet simplicity of her character. Her hands were still white and lovely, and she held a little velvet work bag on her lap. It was strange to see how she had grown in time to look like her husband. Only her dark eyes by their shape and their liveliness suggested her half-Latin origin. On her grandfather's side, Madame Buttonbrook was of French-Swiss stock, though born in Hamburg. Her daughter-in-law, Frau Consul Elizabeth Buttonbrook, born Kroger, laughed the sputtering Kroger laugh and tucked in her chin as the Krogers did. She could not be called a beauty, but like all the Krogers, she looked distinguished. She moved with graceful deliberation and had a clear, well-modulated voice. People liked her and felt confident in her. Her reddish hair curled over her ears and was piled in a crown on top of her head, and she had the brilliant white complexion that goes with such hair, set off with a tiny freckle here and there. Her nose was rather too long, her mouth somewhat small. Her most striking facial peculiarity was the shape of her lower lip, which ran straight into the chin without a curve. She had on a short bodice with high puffed sleeves that left exposed a flawlessly modelled neck adorned with a spray of diamonds on a satin ribbon. The console was leaning forward in his easy chair rather fidgety. He wore a cinnamon-coloured coat with wide lapels and leg-of-mutton sleeves close-fitting at the wrists and white linen trousers with black stripes up the outside seams. His chin nestled in a stiff choker collar around which was folded a silk cravat that flowed down amply over his flowered waistcoat. He had his father's deep-set blue observant eyes, though their expression was perhaps more dreamy, but his features were clearer cut and more serious. His nose was prominent and aquiline, and his cheeks, half covered with a fair curling beard, were not so plump as the old man's. Madame Buttonbrook put her hand on her daughter-in-law's arm and looked down at her lap with a giggle. Oh, mon vieux, he's always the same, isn't he, Betsy? The consul's wife only made a motion with her delicate hand so that her gold bangles tinkled slightly. Then, with a gesture habitual to her, she drew her finger across her face from the corner of her mouth to her forehead as if she were smoothing back a stray hair. But the consul said, half smiling, yet with mild reproach, There you go again, father, making fun of sacred things. They were sitting in the landscape room on the first floor of the rambling old house in Meng Street, which the firm 
of Johann Buddenbrook had acquired some time since, though the family had not lived in it long. The room was hung with heavy, resilient tapestries put up in such a way that they stood well out from the walls. They were woven in soft tones to harmonise with the carpet, and they depicted idly landscapes in the idyllic landscapes in the style of the 18th century, with merry vine dresses, busy handsome, sorry, busy husbandmen, and gaily beribboned shepherdesses who sat beside crystal streams with spotless lambs in their laps, or exchanged kisses with amorous shepherds. The scenes were usually lighted by a pale yellow sunset to match the yellow coverings on the white enamelled furniture and the yellow silk curtains at the two windows. For the size of the room, the furniture was rather scant. A round table in its slender legs, decorated with fine lines of gilding, stood not in front of the sofa but by the wall opposite the little harmonium on which lay a flute case. Some stiff armchairs were ranged in a row around the walls. There was a sewing table by the window and a flimsy ornamental writing desk laden with knick-knacks. On the other side of the room, from the windows, was a glass door through which one looked into the semi-darkness of a pillared hall, and on the left were the lofty white folding doors that led to the dining room. A semicircular niche in the remaining wall was occupied by the stove, which crackled away behind a polished wrought iron screen, for cold weather had set in early. The leaves of the little lime trees around the churchyard of St. Mary's across the way had turned yellow, though it was but mid-October. The wind whistled around the corners of the massive Gothic pile, and a cold, thin rain was falling. On Madame Buttonbrook's account, the double windows had already been put in. It was Thursday, the day on which all the members of the family living in the town assembled every second week by established custom. Today, however, a few intimate friends as well had been bidden to a family dinner, and now, towards four o'clock in the afternoon, the Buttonbrooks sat in the gathering twilight and awaited their guests. Little Aunt, little Antony had not let her grandfather interfere with her toboggan ride. She merely pouted, sticking out her already prominent upper lip still further over the lower one. She was at the bottom of her Mount Jerusalem, but not knowing how to stop herself, she shot over the mark. Amen, she said. I know something, grandfather. Tiens, cried the old gentleman. She knows something. He made it as if he were itching all over with curiosity. Did you hear, Mama? She knows something. Can anyone tell me? If the lightning, uttered Tony, nodding her head with every word, sets something on fire, then it's the lightning that strikes. If it doesn't, why, then it's the thunder. She folded her arms and looked around her like one sure of applause. But old Buttonbrook was annoyed by this display of wisdom. He demanded to know who had taught her such nonsense. It turned out that the culprit was the nursery governess Ida Jungmann, who had lately been engaged from Marienwerder. The consul had to come to her defence. You are too strict, Papa. Why shouldn't the children have her own little ideas about such things at her age? Excuse me, Monsieur. Mais c'est une folie. You know, I don't like the children's heads muddled with such things. The thunder strikes, does it? Oh, very well. Let it strike and get along with your Prussian woman. The truth was, the old gentleman hadn't a good word to say for Ida Jungmann. Not that he was now reminded 
He had seen something of the world, having travelled by coach to southern Germany in 1813 to buy up wheat for the Prussian army. He had been to Amsterdam and Paris and was too enlightened to condemn everything that lay beyond the gabbled roofs of his native town. But in social intercourse, he was more apt than his son to draw the line rigidly and give the cold shoulder to strangers. So when this young girl, she was only then twenty, had come back with his children from a visit to Western Prussia, as a sort of charity child, the old man had made his son a scene for the act of piety, in which he spoke hardly anything but French and low German. Ida was the daughter of an innkeeper who had died just before the Buddenbrook's arrival in Marienwerder. She had proved to be capable in the household and with the children, and her rigid honesty and Prussian notions of caste made her perfectly suited to her position in the family. She was a person of aristocratic principles, drawing hairline distinctions between class and class, and very proud of her position as servant of the higher orders. She objected to Tony's making friends with any schoolmate whom she reckoned as belonging only to the respectable middle class. And now the Prussian woman herself came from the pillared hall through the glass door, a fairly tall, big-boned girl with a black flock, frock, with smooth hair and an honest face. She held by the hand an extraordinarily thin small child dressed in a flowered pink frock with lustreless ash-coloured hair and the manner of a little old maid. This was Clothilde, the daughter of a nephew of old Buddenbrook who belonged to a penniless branch of the family and was in business at Rostock as an estate's agent. Clothilde was being brought up with Antony about being about the same age and a docile little creature. Everything is ready, Mademoiselle Jungmann said. She had had a hard time learning to pronounce her R's, so now she rolled them tremendously in her throat. Clothilde helped very well in the kitchen, so there was not much for cook to do. Monsieur Barenbrook sneered behind his lace frill at Ida's accent. The console patted his little niece's cheek, and said, that's right, Tilda, work and pray. Tony ought to take a pattern from you. She's far too likely to be saucy and idle. Tony dropped her head and looked at her grandfather from under her eyebrows. She knew he wouldn't defend her. He always did. No, no, he said. Hold your head up, Tony. Don't let them frighten you. We can't all be alike, each according to his lights. Tilda is a good girl, but we're not so bad either. Hey, Betsy? She turned to his daughter-in-law, who generally deferred to his views. Madame Antoinette, probably more from shrewdness than conviction, sided with the console, and thus the older and the younger generation crossed hands in the dance of life. You're very kind, Papa, the console's wife said. Tony will try her best to grow up a clever and industrious woman. Have the boys come home from school? She asked Ida. Tony, who, from her perch on her grandfather's knee, was looking out the window, called out in the same breath, Tom and Christian are coming up Johann's street and Herr Hofstede and Uncle Doctor. The bells of St. Mary's began to chime, ding-dong, ding-dong, rather out of time, so that one could hardly tell what they were playing. Still, it was very impressive. The big and the little bell announced the one in lively and the other in dignified tones that it was four o'clock, and at the same time a shrill peal from the bell over the vestibule door went ringing through the entry, and Tom and Christian entered, together with the first guests, Jean-Jacques Hofstede, 
the poet, and Dr. Grabow, the family physician. Alright, there we go. First chapter, done. Um, well, my first thoughts are, I think this translation is pretty good. Pretty straightforward. So I don't know if I'll, I'll need to uh, switch it up. And yeah, I liked it so far. I think we might want to get a bit of a um, character list going, just so we don't all get too confused. All right, let's discuss chapter one over on the Hemingway list, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow.